You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTD. In the background, you hear Morton Gould's American Salute. That is helping us introduce part two of today's morning show. From the archives, a 2003 interview with author Ace Collins about his book, Songs Sung Red, White, and Blue, the stories behind America's best-loved patriotic songs. This is certainly good timing, and, uh, and I imagine that, that the timing of it is not lost on you or, or your publisher, that you are, in a sense, capitalizing uh, on, on something at, at, a, at a very propitious uh, moment in time. But I'm sure uh, more than good timing motivates the, the, the writing of this book. Well, it's interesting in the fact that I pitched this idea 10 years ago, and, and it was rejected along with the Christmas book and others. And so I, I wrote in the process a, a lot more books and came back to it and actually... Uh, the book uh, idea was hatched, and the contracts were signed, and the initial research uh, done or started before 9/11. So, uh, the fact that the book is coming out uh, at a time when all of this is going on in the world uh, is is something that we obviously hadn't planned on. Um, and I just felt that when people hear songs like "God Bless America" or things like that, there is a certain feeling that happens that if they knew the story behind these songs, if they understood the the way that we it, they came to be known so well by Americans and used so well by Americans, because there have been thousands of patriotic songs written since 1776, and yet there's only a handful that we actually know and know well. And I'm I'm so glad you said that because um, I review compact discs for the national. Uh, Association of Teachers of Singing for their Journal of Singing. And I recently reviewed a, a very interesting compact disc uh, called uh, uh, Great Singers Sing Patriotic Songs. And these go way back to the turn of the century and are primarily operatically trained singers. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that was so striking, uh, along with the fact that you have, for instance, recordings of the Star-Spangled Banner, a quarter of a century before it became our national anthem, I mean, right from the dawn of recorded sound, really, but was the fact that, that a number of these uh, singers were recording patriotic songs that are now completely forgotten for one reason or another. Sometimes songs, I suppose, composed at a given moment in history uh, where it made sense or spoke to people in a way that it maybe just doesn't anymore. Well, and yet, I, the, I think that there is that. If you, if you go back in history and you look particularly at World War II, there were a tremendous amount of songs written during World War II that had a great um, patriotic meaning during that time. I, I, I saw, not to be confused by much more, with a much more modern song, Smoke on the Water was a huge hit in World War II. It was about a specific Marine uh, unit, and, and it just swept the nation up. It, it topped the Billboard charts and everything else. It was a country music song, but you do not, and there were no country music charts at the time. It was topping the real charts. You don't hear those songs anymore. I think it takes a special song that has kind of timeless values to make it. There were songs in the Revolutionary War uh, that I wrote the stories behind that aren't in this book because uh, Carper Collins had to cut it for length. One of them was called Liberty, which was a huge, vastly popular song the first 20 years of the nation that has now disappeared and you just do not hear, hear it at all. Uh, there are other songs that we hear that are from the Civil War, uh, Revolutionary War and stuff. We don't know the words to them, but we recognize the music, because the music has been used in uh, Ken Burns' documentaries on PBS or uh, 
uh, old movies about uh, the Civil War and, and, and things like that. And so you have songs like Battle Cry of Freedom, which is a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, it's a very, very well-known tune, but most people do not know it is actually from the Civil War. They don't know it was written in the height of the Civil War. They don't know the story of the person behind it, but they recognize it when they hear it. So even though the words are not forgetting anymore a few have hung on like that thanks really to the motion picture industry so that's one that you chose to include in the book i'm pretty sure oh yes yeah you know you, you look back at, at various times in our nation's history and, and uh people may not realize this but there were over 400 songs written about lincoln himself during the hmm. civil war and right wow. after the civil war and so none of those survived that you know none of those are songs that we that we sing today uh but so Songs, you know, we think of today as being the song age because you put it out on records or videos and you get it out there. And, but songs have been an important part of American history forever, and hence the patriotic songs, because we have gone through traumas and wars and things like that are, are essential as well. And, and there were hundreds of them written during each conflict. There are just a few that survive, and those few are very, very special, and we've included them in this book. And once people, I think, know the stories behind them, they become more special. We're speaking with Ace Collins, the author of Songs Sung, Red, White, and Blue, the stories behind America's best-loved patriotic songs. This is probably as good a point as any to, uh, to mention that in, in choosing the 32 songs which are in the pages of this book, there are uh, several that probably in the minds of, of, of some Americans are, are, are not standard patriotic songs. And in the, in the preface of the book, you say that you know you've drawn from the left and the right, and uh, and along with the more sort of military flavored patriotic songs, which uh, we all know so well, um, you've also chosen a few that we might more aptly call uh, kind of protest songs. Well, Abraham, Martin, and John—the very I first think, one in the book, as a matter uh, of fact—considered that. Uh, and you and you think about it, Abraham, Martin, and John was released at the same time, about the same time, you know, and from a general standpoint, as the Ballad of the Green Beret. And you have two songs that really evoke uh, a very unique time, a time when I was a teenager in America in the 60s, and well, actually, 60s and 70s, I was a teenager in the 70s. It, you look at the trauma America was going through, and, and you look at people were looking for answers, since Abraham Martin and John really talks about Dion saying that song. It was actually written by Dick Feller, whose other big hit in life was, was Snoopy vs. the Red Baron. So there's an irony there that, this man who had written this great comic song about the comic strip dog would turn around and write this song that had such a a catch-all for Americans during that time who were going through the shock and trauma of having assassinations and having riots in the streets and, and trying to figure out if America was ever going to be America again. And, you know, the mere fact that he ended that song, if you could, you could listen to it, you can hear Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech in the background. Hmm. You start to get a feel that as much as this was a protest song, it was also a song that believed in America and believed in America very, very well. And, you know, the flip side of that, of course, was the song that Sergeant Barry Sadler wrote and saying he was an ex-Green Beret. Actually, he was a Green Beret when he wrote the song about the troops that John F. Kennedy uh, put together to uh, special forces. And actually, Kennedy was uh, inspired by the French special forces who wore the berets and stuff and fought in some very unique battles. And uh, he put those together, and, and the Green Berets became this legendary group, but they were really a legendary group within the armed forces themselves. Very few people outside the forces knew about them, and uh, and 
Sergeant Barry Sadler came up with that. He sang that. Uh, it was put on Ed Sullivan and others, and it became the song that embraced the military at a time when the when the military service was not being embraced at all. And once again, it crossed lines. Abraham Martin and John was popular with conservatives and liberals both because it touched the heart. Uh, even during the height of the Vietnam War, you had you had liberals also listening to Ballad of Green Berets because it talked about the sacrifices these men were involved with fighting in a war that they really didn't understand, a lot of them. And so I, I think you had those two songs really, probably as much as any other, defined uh, a time in our country's history when uh, we were, were having, it sounds funny, we're 200 years old, we were having growth pains, we were having insecurities, we were having moments when we weren't sure what the future held. And it was a scary time. And, and those two songs reflected that, I think, very, very well and reflected the country's mood. Yes. Well, and of course, it's interesting that uh, some of the, the more stirring, basic patriotic songs, as we sort of think of them, often sprang up uh, in the midst of moments of great uncertainty and uh, sprang up in spite of that uncertainty and also sort of because of it and directly in the face of it. I, I think, you know, and, and they also spring up, you know, you look at a song like God Bless America, and God Bless America was, has been called Irving Berlin, probably the greatest American songwriter. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's his crowning achievement, yet what is really ironic about that was that Berlin wrote that during World War One, and he wrote it for a Broadway musical that he was putting on, and during the rehearsals of the musical, he was listening to God Bless America, which was the song that he had, he had, he had composed to finish the musical, to conclude the musical, the high point. And he listened to it and was so unaffected by it, he decided it was smaltzy, uninspired, and completely irrelevant, and the American people would laugh at it. And so he took it out of the show and put it in a trunk and forgot about it. So here's this man who so reflects the American dream, because here he, a Jewish immigrant, came over with his family as a child, worked in, as a waiter, rose from Tin Pan Alley to become America's greatest songwriter. So he has lived the American dream. He looks at this song, God Bless America, and throws it away. Hmm. Well, there's another throwaway that's a part of this, too, and that's Kate Smith. Kate Smith was an incredible child prodigy, but when it came to making her life as a singer, making a living as a singer, people laughed at her because she was a very, very large woman. And she became, rather than the great singer on Broadway, she became the one that the comics, comics brought out on stage and made fun of. They told all the fat jokes about her. So she was making a living, really, at her own expense, you know. And here is this dynamic woman who was probably never going to be anything but a joke, except radio came along. And it didn't make any difference what you looked like on radio. And so Kate Smith found a home. And in 1937, this woman who had been rejected for the first 10 years of her career, so embraced by radio, was looking for a song to sing on Veterans Day, which then was called Our, Our Mistress Day. And she couldn't find one. And her, a her agent and her manager called Irving Berlin, they talked to Berlin. Berlin remembered a song that he had thrown away 20 years before. They dug through his file cabinet until they found it. And here was a song that Berlin still thought was too, too hokey to really sing. It was performed for the first time in November of 1937, and people went absolutely crazy from the second they heard it on Kate Smith's show. Hmm. And, and so you have a rejected woman who was made fun of and an immigrant from Russia who came together to write what is probably the best love or for write and bring to the to America a song that had been rejected for 20 years and, and was the best loved America song ever, probably. I mean, you know, 
God Bless America is probably everyone's favorite. Well, not everyone's, but a majority of Americans' favorite song about America is God Bless America. We're speaking with Ace Collins and about his book called Songs Sung, Red, White, and Blue, the stories behind America's best-loved patriotic songs. Um, We should certainly spend at least a little bit of time talking about our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner. You really give us some fascinating uh, information here uh, about the, the, the genesis of the Star-Spangled Banner and Francis Scott Key, of course, a very familiar name to many. One of the things that's, of course, very interesting ab- about this and others is, is when uh, a, a patriotic song, or in this case our national anthem, begins its life as simply a poem with, with no music attached to it whatsoever. The Defense of Fort McHenry was its name, yeah. Uh, the thing I find most interesting about it, the Star-Spangled Banner is it took a, a calamity of mistakes and unusual decision to create the song. Um, we had a, had a man who was a doctor in Marlboro, uh, Maryland, named Beans, who had been entrusted with all of the important state papers of uh, Maryland during the War of 1812. He, he locks them in a jail for safekeeping, and then forgetting they're there, arrests two British soldiers for being drunk and disorderly and throws them in a jail with the most important papers in the state of Maryland. And so they didn't want to lose the papers. They didn't want to have them burned. They, and so the, when the British come in to free their soldiers, they are looking at the papers. And instead of noticing the papers, they get mad at Dr. Beans and arrest him. Well, Francis Scott Key was called upon by the people of Marlboro. He was a very famous attorney who knew British law to go and ask for the release of Dr. Beans. He went to the, the ship, the prisoner ship that Dr. Beans was being held on. He talked to the British admiral uh, in Baltimore Harbor, the British admiral listened to him and said, no, I'm not going to release this man. He, you know, he, he, he is an enemy of the state. And then, in a Perry Mason-style move, uh, he pulls out of his pocket letters written by British soldiers to Dr. Bean thanking him for saving their lives. So this doctor, who was very, very pro-American, nevertheless uh, would save the life of anyone in need, and so many, many wounded sol- soldiers were saved. And so the admiral said, okay, We'll let him go, but we're not going to let any of you go until after we fight and take this fort because you know too much about our defenses. Hmm. So what happens is they get stuck on the prisoner ship the next three days waiting for the battle. Well, the battle itself is a battle that is is fraught with British mistakes and also uh, some American ingenuity that makes that allows Francis Scott Key to be inspired. Uh, the general at the fort decided he wanted the British to know that he was in charge of that area. And the best way he needed to do it was to have a flag maker make the biggest American flag that had ever been made. This thing was like 30 feet wide. And so he is sitting there with a 100-foot flagpole at this fort with a flag that's 30 feet wide. And so you can see it from miles and miles away. And it just so happened that Francis Scott Key was eight miles away. We think of him now as being, you know, 150 yards from the fort when he sees the flag the next morning through the smoke and the mist. But, no, the only way he saw the flag was because this, this commander decided he was going to have the biggest flag in the world. <laughs> so here he is, eight miles away. He pulls up a sky, a sky glass, spy glass. He watches this incredible battle with rockets and all these other things. And rockets, by the way, were kind of a new thing, and they didn't work at all. The reason you hear the rockets bursting in midair is because they never made it to the fort. They had them said all wrong they were too far away and so the rockets were but breaking up long before they got to their objective <laughs> and the british just had a series of miscalculations on what they were doing and the next day they the gunfire was quiet and key thought well we've lost the battle he takes 
He borrows a spyglass from a British man, looks at it, and there is the flag still flying. And that's what inspired him to write the poem, Star Spangled Banner. By the way, the like many of our great American songs, the music that it was matched to, uh, and this is, this is really, I think, very ironic, was, of course, an old British song. So uh, it was an old British pub song. They used this to, they used this, this to celebrate as they, as, they, as they went and had their ale in British pubs. And so this song that had had more than 100 different lyrics attached to it finally found a home where the lyrics and the words went together in a song that was originally called The Defense of Fort McHenry, which we now know as The Star Spangled Banner. Hmm. I've always wanted to hear that melody uh, more in its original form as a pub song with some of the lyrics that uh, might have been attached to it. And ironically enough, Key, two years before, who was, an, who was a poet, had actually written a song and then, and then uh, written a song that was a salute to Stephen Decatur, uh, the great American admiral, and had, uh, and had uh, set that song to the same music. So it wasn't the first time he had used the music either. So we don't know if he had this tune specifically in mind for these words, but... But he maybe did have that tune, maybe at least in his subconscious, as he uh, as he wrote these words. And of course, he wrote it on the back of an envelope. And I've always wondered if the envelope uh, that he wrote that song on the back of it went to, later and polished it at a hotel where he was staying. But if the envelope wasn't one of the envelopes that uh, one of the British soldiers had sent to praise Doctor Beans, so <laughs> it took a lot of different uh, things coming together to make you know our national anthem a, a song that we embrace and love and. And, and like so many, it was probably never meant to be heard and never meant to be used. As a matter of fact, it got out and people got to know about it simply because Key's brother-in-law was so impressed that he had it printed up and distributed to people on the streets in, uh, throughout uh, Baltimore. And the first place it was ever sung with this tune, by the way, was once again in a, in a, in a tavern. So, hmm. uh, And we didn't... Another thing people think, well, gosh, ever since there's been baseball, we've had national anthems and football games. No, that didn't happen to World War II. That's uh, right. You, you, you mentioned that fact, and you said that some people believed fervently, and maybe there are a few that still do, that, that in order not to trivialize the national anthem, it should only be used for government events. But, uh, very, but, very special events. They, they were afraid if you heard it at every, every baseball game, it would just become another song, and people wouldn't, wouldn't respond to it in a positive way, and it would just be, okay, let's get it over with so we can get the game going on. You also mentioned uh, that this became our national anthem in 1931, Mm -hmm. and uh, and that at the time that that choice was made, there was some controversy, that there were a fair number of Americans who believed that uh, a a better choice would have been uh, America the Beautiful. America the Beautiful and another another group that believed uh, My Country Tis of Thee. And there was quite a controversy over it. And actually... actually, uh, Catherine Bates, who wrote *America the Beautiful*, weighed in for *Star Spangled Banner*. Interesting. Uh, so she, she, you know, she was one of the forces who wrote her congressman and said, "No, it needs to be the *Star Spangled Banner*," which had been kind of the unofficial national anthem since at least the Civil War, because it had been played by military bands at specific uh, military events and things like that. But it, the national, the America had no national anthem for the first 170 years or 160 years of its of its existence. I do want to ask you about America the Beautiful, which happens to be my favorite and, uh, you know, more significantly, the, the favorite of, of many, many Americans. Uh, one thing that I didn't realize is that there are original lyrics slightly different from those which are much more familiar. Can you tell us why there are essentially two sets of lyrics for America the Beautiful? Well, you know, not only do you have two sets of lyrics, the song was set to over a hundred different melodies at one time or another, too, until it actually latched on to you know, a melody that that uh, stuck 
you know, essentially speaking, the song, and most people know this, Catherine Bates was a professor at Wellesley. Uh, she was, uh, what they don't realize, that she was in Colorado on Pikes Peak because she'd taken a summer job teaching um, because she wanted to see the American West. She was quite an adventurer. I mean, you know, she was uh, a preacher's kid. She just, uh, she just went everywhere and did everything that she could possibly do. A, a woman well ahead of, uh, of her time in, in so many different ways. And it, when she was in Colorado Springs teaching, she went up on Pikes Peak, and, and she, you know, she w- was so impressed by what she saw on this train ride and then later a wagon ride up to the top of the peak that she sat down, pulled out her journal, and copied down a poem. Now, she did that a lot. She was not really, you know, planning on on, on sharing that uh, with anyone, but she did it a great deal. And, and, and when she wrote this poem, up here on 14,000 feet, you know, uh, she took it back. She was in no rush to uh, share it with anyone or anything else. And after she'd gotten back to Wellesley, you know, she she read it again, really, for the first time. And when she read it, she was deeply disappointed because she felt it hadn't captured the majesty that she had wit- you know, that she had actually witnessed there. And so she did some polishing, she did some rewriting, and ultimately speaking, she sent it off to uh, um, another, you know, a publisher who published it in a book. Long story short, we could go on forever on the story because it's a wonderful story. And people who mm-hmm. uh, people who want to really read about this song and love this song, like you, they should read Lynn Sher's book. Uh, that is a is a huge book all about America the Beautiful. Lynn Sher, the great, who was with ABC News forever, if you remember her. Yes. Well. Oh yes. And and the book is just wonderful. I you know I but this woman wrote this thing. She she refined the lyrics. She put it out. And ironically enough, uh, it was published by the same same magazine that published uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic initially. And so you have this poem being published. Then you have a race for the next four years with everybody in the country trying to write music for it because everybody knew it was inspired. And they couldn't find music for it that fit. And Catherine Bates would play it before with 20 or 30 different people. She didn't want to insult anyone. Whatever, hmm. Whoever wrote the music, that was fine with her. Eventually, they found music that had been written uh, for a hymn, and they pulled it away from the hymn, and and a man that the man who had written the hymn was an American success story in himself, in himself, and he had passed away the year before it was matched to his song. Oh yes, Samuel Ward. And Samuel Ward's song became the the foundation that holds America the Beautiful together. And you combine the two, and you can't imagine. Uh, I know this happens a lot because it it happened time and time again in Christmas music when I research that. But you have the coming together of two different people uh, who never met who lived in different time frames, a lot of cases, but it took both of their inspiration to pull together a song that has become ti- timeless. I remember Hark the Herald Angels Sing was written by Wesley in England, and then the music was written by Mendelssohn, and both of them didn't like to have their work played with at all, and so after they both died, and Mendelssohn had written the original music for that as a salute to Gutenberg for the printing press, and uh, on the anniversary of, printing, of the press coming together, and they, they brought him together, and it became Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we can't imagine it any other way. Yet these two gentlemen were so stubborn that in their lifetime they would not allow any other music or any other <laughs> words to be applied to their own to their own creation. So uh. it took both of them, in some ways, passing on for the for the magic to happen. And these people were both inspired, and yet it came together. Hmm. You know, my favorite story in the whole book is the jo- George M. Cohen story that you can tell real quickly. Grand oh yes, for Yankee Grand Doodle Dandy. Flag. I mean, or, yeah, Grand Old Flag. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got over there. He's got all these great things. But Cohen was a was a legend in 1905 with Little Johnny Jones, which had "Give My Regard to Broadway" and "I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy" in it. And 
he had bought a car and he was cruising down from his country home into New York and he was going to find, you know, he was just on top of the walk. And if you have seen, even though it's largely fictionalized, if you've seen the movie about George M. Cohen where Jimmy Stewart plays him, Yankee Doodle Dandy, you, you get an idea that Cohen was a man who was, who was very confident. He was cocky. I mean, he, you know, he was a man who believed in Cohen. And, um, and he spent most of his time talking and very little time listening, I found out in doing his research, too. But as he was driving along the road that day, he saw an old man waiting for a ride. And this man, well, not actually waiting for a ride, he saw him walk along the road. This man was probably uh, old enough and, and poor enough he'd never even ridden in a car. Cohen asked him if he wanted to ride. This man got in a car these tattered clothes, this white beard, and started talking to Cohen as they rode along. As he talked, he kept petting this piece of cloth, this old rag that he held in his arms. And Cohen was amazed by the man's stories because he told him about the Civil War. This man had been a Union, off, a union uh, uh, trooper in, in the Civil War, and he had fought throughout the entire Civil War. And he told him with a great deal of pride, I was the flag bearer, and the entire time I was the flag bearer, that flag never dro- dropped and it never dipped. Even during the time when Pickett charged us, I never lost that flag. And Cohen listened to this man speak of this, this flag with such great pride. And then he realized that the object in this man's arms that he was petting like a little kitten was the very flag that he had carried throughout the entire Civil War. And the, the man's last words before he got out of the car was, Mr. Cohen, and he patted that flag one more time, it's a grand old rag, sir. It's a grand old rag. When I love the phrase right before it, you quote, it was all for this. All for this. It was all for this. And, of course, Cohen went back and he wrote the song. And, and he wrote it as grand old rag, as the story had been told him, but the public did not respond well to that. He changed it to grand old flag. And so if you think about it, and I, I think this is what makes a lasting impression on all of us. If you think about it, that, that man who never let that flag drop, that man who, who made the statement it was all for this, because of George M. Cohen, that flag that he carried is still flying. And I think that's an, that is an incredible, incredible thought to realize that this trooper who died soon after he told the story, this obscure man whose name we don't even know, hmm is still proudly carrying that flag. Yeah, his courage every lives time, on. Every time we hear that song, that flag he, he's carrying still high and mighty, and it's still not dipping. Hmm. Well, especially once we know the song, thanks to your marvelous book called Songs Sung, Red, White, and Blue, the stories behind America's best-loved patriotic songs, 32 of them in all, uh, published by Harper Resource, an imprint of Harper Collins, and the author, Ace Collins. I tell Ace, you what, before, mm-hmm. before, before I let you go, I've got to tell your people one more thing. That, yeah. There's another book we have out, ironically enough, at the same time. It's published by Zondervan called Hymns That Have Inspired America and the stories behind them. And it, it, if they like this book, they'll probably also like that because a lot of the songs, that the hymns that have meant so much carried us through the wars and the, and the traumatic times of assassination and others uh, are, uh, you know, they might, find, they might find it very, very interesting. What is that title again? Hymns that, have, hymns that Inspire America. And right. it, it's another book that's kind of in the same vein as this book. Very good. Ace Collins, a real pleasure to read this book and to uh, talk with you about it on the morning show. Thank you so much for your time. What a delight to be with you, and thank you for your time.